Good morning, church family. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, who goes to the hottest place in hell? Have you ever thought about that? Now, I love preaching the Word of God. I love preaching about God's love. I love preaching about God's uh, offer to have peace with Him. And I love to teach about uh, how God saves to the uttermost. But it would be a shortcoming of mine if I never spoke about hell and I never talked about that reality. Spurgeon once spoke and said that to preachers that he taught there in his preacher's school in London that when you speak about heaven, your face should light up as the noonday sun, and whenever you talk about hell, your normal face will do. And so I guess today's sermon, my normal face will do. Um, I also heard of a pastor once who was uh, being interviewed by a church to come and be their pastor, and he, he said to the church he did not believe in hell. And you know what the church said back to him? They said, well, if you don't believe in hell, and that is true, then we don't need you. And if you don't believe in hell, and that is not true, and you believe a false doctrine, then we don't need you. So we don't need you. <laughs> so in a similar fashion here, as we think about this concept, and we, we're going to unpack this a little bit, this is what is commonly referred to and we have looked at and seen before as a warning passage this morning. And we're going to see who it is applied to and who it is pointed towards. So let's look at this passage together. Uh, keep in mind that remember what he was talking about last week. We looked at the lettuce salad. Let us draw near to God. Let us uh, spur one another on to good works, right? Let us uh, uh, therefore uh, not forsake the gathering together of one another. So after this lettuce salad in chapter 10 here, he now turns a corner and gives us a warning. Beginning in verse 26, here's what he says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of one or two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sacrificed and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of His holy, inerrant, infallible Word, and I pray that He writes this truth on our hearts this morning. When we come to passages like this, we must ask some questions about the text. Going back into the very first one here that we look at, for if we go on sinning deliberately, let's begin there in unpacking this. What does he mean by going on sinning deliberately? 
you have asked yourself this question. You have to ask this when you come to a text like this. So what does that mean? So how does that work? What are you telling me about going on sinning willfully or deliberately? What is meant specifically here by deliberate sin? What is the deliberate sin that is being addressed here? What is the pastoral problem here? That, that the author of Hebrews is addressing. What is the, you know, for the daily living of the, of the flock? What is the issue that he's addressing? And we're going to get to that answer. And, and I think there's a key that's important here in understanding this passage. A lot of people come to a passage like this and they misunderstand it and they misinterpret it. Uh, I used to be a part of a church of God church. And we got to this passage in Hebrews when I was in the youth department and the, the, the pastor who was there, the youth pastor who I still greatly admire but think he was wrong on this issue, said, now guys, if you sin one time after you're saved, you are lost again as if you had never been saved in the first place. That's what he told us. And I came up to him and I said, you know, I re- really have issue with that teaching. I said, you know, when I read Hebrews prior to this, there's a lot of assurance here about the work of Christ, that he's a once for all sacrifice for God's people. When I go back to John and I read about those that have been placed in God's hand, you know, you have to do a lot of theological acrobats here to, to turn around. You know, I have studied church history and I have a decent understanding of what all the denominations believe and think on various theological topics and issues. And I remember one time, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about the fact that, you know, as uh, Baptists, we believe in the priesthood of believers. I think that is biblically right. I think the way we approach the New Testament is right. I think our view of church government, that there are things that belong to the local body and the body alone to decide that that, that is correct, that it's not a presbyteros like our Presbyterian brothers point to. Uh, I believe the autonomy of local church is good. I think it is right. New Testament teaching, I, I think the uh, priesthood of all believers is a right teaching in the New Testament. So one person asked me once, they said, well, if you weren't a Baptist, what would you be? And I said, I guess I'd just be ashamed. <laughs> I, I, am, I am a Baptist by conviction, not because I was born a Baptist, because I wasn't, but because I came to understand that Baptists have the best understanding and, and approach to the text. In a similar fashion here, uh, we have a lot of sections of Scripture here that tell us about security of a believer. So what, what are we, what are we talking about here when it says deliberately sinning and go on sinning here? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and kind of address here that I think that the deliberate sin is a sin of looking away and rejecting Christ inwardly. So let me see if I can Make this clear. This is in the present and this is in the plural. So the author is actually kind of including himself. If we go on, this is not lost on me. It's like everyone here needs a gut check on, on 26. And here is the gut check, right? If you go on deliberately sinning, so you are a person who has professed Christ. You have received knowledge of the truth. So you have heard the gospel. You understand the gospel at an intellectual level. You may have even had an emotional experience, maybe even a significant emotional experience. It says here, if you go on sinning deliberately, 
But even though you know the gospel, even though you've had an emotional experience, says here, there's no longer a sacrifice for you because internally you've looked away. As a pastor, uh, I had a pastor appreciation dinner this week at the hospital. Sharon was there. Sharon Shepherd was there. And there was a group of pastors mostly in there. And uh, I don't know how it came up, but we were discussing having to do weddings and funerals at the dinner table. And if you ask most preachers, this may sound morbid to you if you're not a preacher, but if you are a preacher, it will sound normative. Most preachers would rather do funerals, not because we wish people to die, but because people really come into contact with their own mortality, and they truly reflect on the words that come out of our mouths when we stand over a casket and point them to Christ. And at a wedding, people are there to eat cake and see a pretty bride. You're basically a little bit better than a prop, right? <laughs> Oftentimes. I said, well, Pastor, we did this and we did that. I said, I understand you tried to make it as gospel-centered as possible, but at the end of the day, most people come in, that's kind of the mentality. And as a pastor, I have had to stand over caskets of people I didn't know. I get calls, Pastor, can you come down, preach a funeral for this person? Okay, that's fine. I'll give you one example. This happened in another state. I got a call like this, got to be friends with the funeral home director. He asked me to come down to this funeral for this lady, and um, she had not been to church. I know because I was the pastor of the church she was on the rolls with for 30 years. And she was not physically ill. She was not a person that could not come. She went everywhere else and did vacations at the beach and, you know, summers and out west and all this stuff. She was healthy to come. And, uh, you know, they said, they said, Pastor, oh, she's so faithful, so faithful, faithful, faithful. That's what her family told me. And I was thinking, well, she wasn't faithful, as Hebrew said earlier, to church attendance, right? She hadn't darkened the doorstep of a church in 30 years. Now, let me be very clear here. Church attendance doesn't save you, but it is a sign of an assurance that you are saved, right? It's a sign that there's actually roots that are underneath there. A lot of times when I get people say, now, or somebody will pass away and they'll say, now, now preacher, you know it's going to be good whenever they address you that way. Now, preacher... He, he made a profession for Christ years ago. Now, he's not lived for Christ his whole life, but he made a profession years and years ago. What does that mean? You know, let me ask you this question. What does it say about a person if they've given their life to Christ? They say they have given their life to Christ, but they have no desire to feast on the Word of God on Sunday morning and come in with God's people. They have no desire to be with God's people. What does that say about them spiritually? I think the person that this is describing is it exactly the person like this. I think the author of Hebrews here is saying those who have gone on deliberately sinning here, those who have made a profession those who claim to be one of us, who more than likely are even on our church rolls, those who go on deliberately sinning, receiving the knowledge of the truth. Remember what James told us. Remember when we did that series through James? 
James told us that the demons in hell have a faith, don't they? They know there is a living God. They know Jesus died for the sacrifices of sin. They stood in the presence of God at some point and had an experience with the presence of God. But are they saved, church? No, they are not. Listen, every demon in hell can take systematic theology 1, 2, and 3 and pass with flying colors. They have an extensive knowledge of the truth. Satan could be a professor at any seminary he chose. He knows Greek, Hebrew, Arabic, all, all of that. These are people who, you know, if that's all you have is a profession years ago, and some emotional experience that you have, and that's all you're hanging your hat on, and that's it. Well, it's similar to being married in one sense, right? I mean, can you imagine this? What if I, I want you to think about something here. You know, this is a, this is an admonishment here to go on and keep believing and stay faithful to Christ and draw near to Him. That's the context of this here. What if I married Becky back in 2005, which I did, and I put the ring on and I kept a copy of our marriage license in my pocket. And if you saw me out in the street and you said, hey, are you married? You, know, you didn't know me. So are you married? Yeah, I'm married. Well, what proof is it that you're married? Well, I got this ring and I got this marriage license, but I hadn't seen Becky since 2005. It's been 14 years since I'd spoken to my wife. What would you think about that? Would you say that person is in a good marriage? Would you say that person loves their spouse? Would you say this is somebody who is striving to be a good husband or wife just because they carry a certificate in their pocket and they wear a ring? And the answer to that is what? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, we would think it rather strange. In a similar fashion here in Hebrews chapter 10, so the author is making this point. Well, pastor, I made a profession of faith at Vacation Bible School back in 1974. And I've got the card right here to prove it. And, right? You know, it, some of you grew up in churches where there were a lot of testimonies. Like, did anybody grow up in churches like that where somebody get up here and say, my life before Christ was like this, and this and this and this happened? And there would always be an older gentleman or an older lady who would get up and she'd say, you know, now before I came to Christ, you know, this was at First Baptist, so there were a lot of, a lot of older folks whenever I was there, and uh, they would say, well, honky-tonk was a fairly common word. For those of you who don't know what a honky-tonk is, it's basically a big old country drinking party at a barn. Somewhere, okay? That's what a honky-tonk is. Well, when I was young, I used to go out to the honky-tonks, and now that I've been saved, then Lord, the Lord saved me. And that's just kind of where the testimony ended. And here's what I would always think when I would hear testimonies like that. And what happened after that, right? What happened for 30 years since that happened? What has your life been like? Or worse yet, sometimes we put people up there who have had this kind of an experience and they're so fresh and so new, they're novices, and they get put up in front of the church, and we think, oh man, that is deliverance there. They've been delivered from that sin. When some of you have quietly been struggling with sin habitually in small ways for 30, 40 years. Sometimes testimonies can be devastating and discouraging. 
But here's the reality of this passage. This is the real gut check. Do we understand there are eternal consequences for rejecting Jesus? Do we truly understand it? This is the main point of the passage. If we go on deliberately, sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, he's saying, if you continue to reject Jesus, there are eternal consequences. He is giving a warning here against the deliberate sin of the truth. And when you get to the end of your life, what you will find is that all you will have to wrap yourself in will simply be your own works and your own efforts. And my question for you is this, and we'll see this in just a minute. Do you really want to look elsewhere for your sacrifice? Do you want to look elsewhere to cover yourself on judgment day? So that when the eye of God gets fixated on you and it is your point to receive that judgment, what will you be standing before God covered in? Will you be covered in Christ and in Christ alone? Or will you be covered in something else? Many of you know that I am a avid historian. I love history. I love American history. I've enjoyed reading World War II and about that struggle. One of my favorite heroes from World War II is Winston Churchill. I don't know if you've ever listened to his speeches or listened to uh, Hitler. I don't know if you've ever seen Hitler. There are videos on YouTube. You can watch him deliver his speech. It is unnerving. You don't have to understand German to know that something is very wrong when that man stands before the people and speaks to them. But I remember there are some words that are reminded me here of this passage from Churchill. Churchill stood before uh, the floor of the House of Parliament there in Westminster, and he says this about the Third Reich. You know, he tried to work it out with them. They tried to work it out with them and keep war away. He said, we gave you the choice between honor and war. You have chosen dishonor, and you shall have war. In a similar fashion here, this stark alternative here, it it resides as well in Hebrews chapter 10, as well in Jeremiah 36. Embrace Christ in faith, have peace with God, or turn your back on Him and reject Him, and you will have God's judgment. You will have it, because there's no sacrifice for you. Let's go on here. But the fearful expectation of judgment and a, and a fury fire that will consume the adversaries, that is the judgment that will come. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is an interesting construction that he's put in this passage. I think what he's pointing us to here is the fact that even in the Old Testament, it would only take two or three witnesses saying that you are guilty of idolatry to result in stoning. You can read about this in the Old Testament, Leviticus, and different laws. And there was no sacrifice, no mercy that was going to bail you out of that. Here, here is the reality. This is the part where I get to. Verse 28, I think, answers the question, who sits in the hottest seats in hell? Verse 28 tells us, right? If in the Old Testament, the witness that was given to you was <clears throat> enough to condemn you to death, and the harshness and the wrath being poured out. You read in the Old Testament, the guy picking up sticks on Sunday, stoned to death, right? You, you read about the reality of that it seems harsh and hard. 
It is a drop in the bucket compared to what will happen to those who sit under the preaching of the Word of God week in, week out, who have God's mercy extended to you yet again. Each Here's the reality of it. I think about this each time I enter the pulpit. Every time I preach the gospel to you, every time I give you the gospel, if you are at a personal level rejecting the gospel and rejecting the sacrifice that is given to you, hell will be worse for you than the drunk who never said under any sermon whatsoever. It will be worse. Here, here is the answer to the question, right? Some of you may have attended Baptist churches functionally for years. And you have sent under preachers here at Grace Baptist Church like Dean Smith and Ron Owens and uh, Billings, Pastor Billings, all these men who gave you the gospel and the word of God week in and week out. And yet still within your heart, you have rejected it silently, quietly, not in the capacity that anybody can see around you. And your name sits on the roll here at Grace Baptist Church, but you are lost. This is what I'm telling you this morning. You think hell will be hot for Adolf Hitler? You think it'll be hot for King Nero in the the first century Rome? Friends, there will be no hotter seats in hell than the seats that Baptists who have sat in Baptist churches for years hearing the gospel and they will burn hotter and brighter than anybody in hell because they had much more responsibility as they heard the gospel every week. It is the equivalent of finding a man broken in the gutter, diseased. And Bill Gates comes up to him and says, Brother, let me take you to the hospital. Let me pay your bills. Let me put you in a home and fill it with food and give you all the medical care you'll need for the rest of your life. And that person says, I know you have the money. I know you have the capability. I'll never do it. No, thank you. How ungrateful. God doesn't tolerate such things. Hell burns hottest for those who have heard the gospel the most. How much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the cup? This is, listen, you know, words can be ratcheted up. These are about as ratcheted up as it gets in Hebrews. You have, you have trampled under your feet the, the Son of God, you have profaned the blood of Jesus Christ and the covenant by which He was sacrificed. And look at this right here. You have outraged the Holy Spirit. It is an outrage to the Holy Spirit. The very thought of God who is holy and just, it ought to prompt in us fear, a healthy fear of who He is. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The Christian faith is preserved by faith. Not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. The challenge here in Hebrews is that Christians we're facing here is, is similar to the one in Jeremiah 36. And what we're seeing here, the call is to preserve and move forward. To move forward here and to check your own heart here and to check where you truly are. This is the real issue in this text. 
don't put the promises of God and Jesus Christ second in your life. Don't make it second. Make it first. Make it the first priority. We were at a birthday party this weekend and nobody at the table was doing this. We were discussing it. I'm all for, you know, sports and I coach and I help and I think they're great. But there should be balance in children's lives. And they should see the priority of gathering with God's people. I really struggle. I'm just going to say this. Some of these like travel teams where people are spending fourteen to forty thousand dollars and they're missing Sundays and Wednesdays and you know all these different things. You think God's pleased with that? I mean, you know, you can't tell me. You can't tell me that there there's some kind of balance in that. There's no balance. That's all one hundred percent one side. All one hundred percent one side. Um, you know, and I, and I hate to break it to people, but you know, how many Jason Wittens do you think are going to come out of Carter County? And the answer is not that many, right? Not that many. But how many believers sold out for Christ can come out of Carter County? And I think the answer to that is a lot. Enough to change the world. So we're called here in this passage to preserve, to check ourselves. And then finally here, Hebrews 10.31. How many of you have ever read the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards? Please raise your hand if you've ever read that sermon or heard it. Nobody? Guess what's going to be tonight for Sunday night service? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We're going to hear it tonight, friends. This is where he got the, the text for it. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. You think what Satan can devise in hell is bad? You think what Satan can come up with in schemes of destroying humanity? It's going to look like a kindergartner with a crayon compared to the wrath of God. Listen. Make Christ first. The author here tells us, put the promises of God as the priority. Don't put Jesus in second place in your calculations. Don't put the coming Savior in the second place in your calculations. Don't put the faith in Christ as He is offended in the gospel here as second place in your calculations. The call of this passage here is to keep on believing and stay focused on that. Don't look elsewhere. Don't look elsewhere. There are many people who are professing faith and somewhere along the way maybe get lost. The call here in this passage, keep your eyes on Jesus. The Christian life can be hard because we live in a sinful, broken world, and yet the call remains, keep believing the gospel, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this Word. It's my prayer that by grace of Your Holy Spirit that You would cause every member of this church, every friend who is with us this morning to believe on Jesus for salvation. But not only that, to keep them believing in Jesus as the days of our lives until the very end and You will bring them home. Lord, thank You for this promise. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.